Well, you guys are already standing up, so I want to go ahead and read to us from Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. We've got a long passage to read, so I'm going to go ahead and warn you to uh, get comfortable on your feet. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, uh, we've got some Bibles at the end of every row uh, just for that purpose. And the passage we're going to be reading from today is on page number 30 in that little Bible, if you want to grab one. We're going to read from Mark chapter 4, verse 35, to through the end of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 43. This is the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering all about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. 
Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But hearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. You may be seated. So unless you've had your hole in a, uh, your head in a hole in the ground the last few days, you know we just survived midterm elections this week. And I'll, get, I'll admit, I, I like to watch politics as they develop, almost like a hobby. Watching those election returns come in is almost like watching football to me. But even I reached my limit by the end of the, uh, I think by the end of this, of this time around. The commercials just got almost unbearable. I don't know if any of you guys had a similar experience, particularly the last week or so, is when you get those attack ads, you know, the really cheaply produced ones with like a couple of black and white grainy images scattered on a black background with some stamp, that red stamp that sort of comes down out of nowhere and stamps liar or, you know, Pelosi supporter or something like that on, on, on top of the, the pictures. But what I got to thinking about this week as I was preparing for this is not those attack ads, but the ones that we got a couple of three months ago, back when they were still trying to introduce you to the candidate back when they wanted to make sure you knew that the candidate was a good shot or was a farmer or at least knew uh, a farmer or at least maybe had a great granddad who was a farmer. Uh, they wanted you to know, you know, not so much what policies the guy supported, but something about the, the person. They wanted to convince you that this person has a personal history that's worth your vote, staking at least two years of your future on, right? That's the purpose of those ads. And that's what I've been thinking about this week as I prepared to talk about these stories because if you think about it, on a much nobler and grander scale, that's 
kind of what Mark is doing in this whole book. He's trying to create a portrait of Jesus that's worth staking your life on, right? You've got plenty of options out there to put your trust in. Mark knows that. There are lots of things to stake your life on. He wants you to stake your life on Jesus and to respond to the message of his kingdom in repentance and faith. And the point of his book has been to convince you why Jesus is worth it. So we've had story after story and little bit of teaching after little bit of teaching trying to convince us something of the nature of this person. He's been answering questions like, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come here to do? And what does that mean for you? How you should, how you should respond? We've seen some pretty amazing things already. He's given us lots of tangible examples from Jesus' history that, uh, that show that he has a power that's unprecedented. But the stories we come to in our passage today, at the end of chapter 4 and through chapter 5, they hang together as a very tight unit that takes this identification of Jesus to another level. You've seen him do some pretty amazing things, but this establishes a power that could only be divine. That's Mark's case. Each of the stories follows the other one almost like, almost like another punch and he's, he's building up towards a knockout blow where Jesus has power even over death. A foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus himself is going to one day rise from the grave and ultimately be the pledge that you can rise from the grave if you repent and believe in his kingdom. That's where he's, that's where he's heading. But each of these stories takes us one step further, showing a power that has not yet been revealed that amazes even the disciples who had already seen him do some amazing things. That's what the, that's the way this text hangs together. That's why we're taking such a big chunk of it all at once. What I want to do today is take the stories one by one Try to enter imaginatively into Mark's world, into the stories as they happen, to try to put ourselves into the shoes of those who, who actually saw these things go down. And then take a step back once we've done that, once we've, once we've appreciated this portrait of a, a Jesus whose power is unmatched, and ask how we're to take encouragement from the power of someone who lived 2,000 years ago. What do we take away, in other words, from the fact that he did amazing things long ago. That's where we're headed today. So let's get into the stories one by one. The point of all the stories is that Jesus is more powerful. First, we see that Jesus is more powerful than nature. The first story we get at the end of chapter four is also, if you think about it, the first nature miracle that we've seen Jesus perform. I mean, I guess you could say that that, that healing someone is sort of a nature miracle because it's a natural body that's getting healed. But, but here we see Jesus interacting with the forces of nature, almost as if they're personal for the first time. The action picks up right after Jesus has finished the teaching, the teaching that we've been covering the past couple weeks, where he's, he's on the sea and he's teaching in parables. He's kind of gone out into a little boat to help his voice carry a little better. And now he's decided he's going to go to the other side of the sea so that he could teach there. So they set out on the sea, but no sooner they're out in the middle of it, too far to, to come back, presumably, that a huge windstorm arises and all of a sudden before they even know it the boat is getting tossed about like crazy and and mark tells us specifically that that the water is already lapping over into the boat and it started to fill up it doesn't take too much imagination to i think to sympathize with the plight of the disciples here because after all we all go on vacation to the mountains or we go to to the beach or we go to places like the grand canyon 
those things aren't random, right? We go there because they're, they're awe-inspiring. And what, what's awe-inspiring, what makes them beautiful, what makes them vacation destinations for all of us, and really in similar regions all over the world, is that they, they dwarf us. They're, they're so much bigger than us. They show us how limited we are that it, it, it blows us away. And we can just sit there on a porch and look at it, and it's entertaining to us. I think that's why. It's just how big these things are and how small we feel in comparison. That's all well and good when it's mountains or when it's the Grand Canyon and you're just looking inside a really big hole that you can walk or drive away from afterwards. The difference between the mountains or the Grand Canyon and the ocean is that the sea can come alive. The sea can become threatening. The same bigness and power that appear so beautiful and awe-inspiring to us transform into something that's ominous, to something that's terrifying even something that leaves us at its mercy. I think the images of, of hurricanes coming ashore a few years ago will always be burned into my mind to watching these guys standing on the beach. You know, they're trying, things are blowing all around them and they're trying to, you know, Anderson Cooper or somebody like that is trying to be the rock star who hangs in there, you know, until the last minute. And, and these waves are coming in and they're, you can see that they're about to take out these beach houses. And you know, ultimately, that that's exactly what they do. Or you watch that footage from the tsunami a few years ago. I don't remember what year, but it was, it was amazing. In South Asia, there was this earthquake, you know, and this wave of water, just a, a wall, really, comes crashing over this island, killing thousands and thousands of people. The sea came alive, and it turned against those who had been there vacationing and admiring its beauty. And here the sea is familiar to the disciples. They made their li- a lot of them made their living fishing on it, but it comes alive, and it's bigger than them. And the point for Mark is how helpless they are. You can almost see them as the water comes lapping over into the boat. You can almost see them scurrying around trying to do anything they can to keep this boat from capsizing. You can see them like maybe grabbing onto the, to the ropes that are holding the sails and fighting, doing whatever you do with the sails or grabbing onto the wheel of the ship. You know, we've seen movies like this. You can almost see them scurrying around with the oars, fighting it, trying to do anything. And no matter what they do, the boat is still getting tossed around like crazy. The contrast between their, that image of what their actions likely look like and Jesus' actions in the story couldn't be any more stark, could it? While they're scrambling around trying to save their lives, Jesus is in the stern asleep on a cushion. You can understand why they'd be frustrated. They come at him with this question. It's not a gentle, loving question that they ask him when they they confront him for not doing anything for them. They're angry. They're frustrated. And you can understand that. If If you've ever been the one who's driving and you're going somewhere you've never been before and you're the one who's responsible to know where you're going and you... And so the person who's with you, they're not really clued in. They're just... They're along for the ride. They assume you know what you're doing and you don't want to... You want to save face. You don't want them to realize it, but you have no idea where you are. If you've been in that situation and, and, and you're, you're getting more and more desperate, the more you recognize that you're helpless and you don't know where you are. And this person's over here singing along to the music, oblivious or trying to engage you in conversation. They don't know anything. And no, I'm not talking about my wife, uh, but maybe, maybe I am a little bit. We, you've been there, right? So it, it's, it's, it's the, 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 that person's Lack of awareness only makes your desperation seem that much more frustrating, right? That's exactly where the disciples are. They're, they're trying to save their lives. They say, teacher, do you not even care that we're perishing? We're here, over here, dying, and you're listening to your iPod. I and mean, that's essentially what they're, what they're saying. 
It doesn't take any time, though, for Mark to show us why Jesus had no fear. He could sleep because he was in control. Contrast all this detail about the disciples and their plight, their terror, and the, the water and the waves lapping into the boat. Mark doesn't give us hardly anything about Jesus. He just says he woke up and he spoke. He wakes up and he rebukes the wind and he says, Peace, be still. And all of this raging as the boat gets thrown around at will by this powerful force that has come alive, it just falls quiet. This isn't a random story. This is a theological story for Mark. This one makes a point about Jesus' identity. This is a story that echoes Psalm 107, and the disciples, well-schooled in their synagogues, probably would have recognized it. In that psalm and others like it, God is the one who speaks to the waves and the winds, and they obey his voice. That's why the disciples, no matter what they had seen Jesus do already, everything, all this amazing stuff we looked at in the past weeks, when this happens, the disciples are afraid. They're, a, they're not put at peace by the fact that their lives are no longer in danger. They're afraid, Mark tells us. And they ask, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is a statement about Jesus' identity. Jesus is not even who the disciples thought he was, and they thought he was a rock star. That's why they had left everything to follow him. This moves his identity to a new level. The wind and the waves hear his voice. The next story continues the same exact theme. So at the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus, he's calmed the storm, so they have smooth sailing from there on out, and they end up on the other side of the sea, their destination. And as soon as his, as soon as his foot hits the ground, he steps out of the boat, he's confronted immediately by the forces of evil. He's confronted immediately, in particular, by this figure that emerges from tombs that would have been cut into the side of the rock uh, that was so common in this region. Guy comes out of the tombs and comes straight up to Jesus, a figure dominated by an unclean spirit. Mark's description of him, Mark's details, he's just a masterful storyteller. But they're haunting, aren't they? He describes for us a man who's, who, who lives his life completely alone, wandering around the hills, screaming and cutting himself with stones. A man completely out of control. It's a horrific, graphic portrait that, in my mind, it conjures up images of Tolkien's Gollum character, right? Any other Lord of the Rings nerds in here? Come on, admit it. Dave is the only one. Gollum. He's like Gollum in the sense that this is a guy who's completely alone, completely isolated, and tormented by this evil inside him that just overpowers him, leaving him almost schizophrenic. He's got this almost divided identity that, that he has at war inside him at all times. This is, that's, that's the image that I get when I read this description of Mark's description of this man. Wandering around the hills, screaming, just like Gollum did. But the main difference between Gollum, if you're familiar with the character, and this guy, is that this guy is incredibly powerful. And that's the point that Mark wants to make. That's the detail that matters to him in this story. Mark goes overboard almost in verses 3 and 4 to emphasize the extreme strength that this guy has and, in particular, the absolute futility of all other efforts to control him. The townspeople had tried their hardest 
we're told that they put shackles on him and they put chains on him. And, and Mark goes overboard with all of these negatives in verses 3 and 4. Look at it. It's almost redundant. No one could bind him. All these extreme statements. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with chains and shackles, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And to sum it all up, no one had strength to subdue him. Get the point? This guy was more than anyone could handle, even with their chains. Enter Jesus. This guy comes up to Jesus and he runs to him. He couldn't get to him quickly enough to fall down on his face before him, recognizing that in Jesus there was a power he had not seen before. He runs up to Jesus pleading, in fact, that Jesus would have some sort of mercy on him, that he would at the very least not send him out of the region, at least just let us go into these pigs We've seen Jesus cast out demons before, but this, is, this like the nature story we've just covered, is, is escalated here. Because here's a man who's possessed by perhaps even thousands of these evil forces. When Jesus interacts with him and he says, my name is Legion, he used the word for the Roman military unit of, I think it's like 6,000 soldiers. So it, we don't need to say that this guy had exactly 6,000 demons. The point is he had a bunch of demons, maybe even thousands of them living inside tormenting him that's the source of his power and that's what makes jesus interaction with him here different than jesus interaction with evil spirits before this takes jesus power and the display of it to a new level even still in spite of this power with jesus all that's necessary are that he speak these words his words as we've seen with jesus all along are his actions his words accomplish exactly what he speaks. Where the incompetent townspeople had just done what they could to control the problem, to bind this problem with chains, Jesus, in his unmatched power, removes the problem itself. He purges the problem, the only fit solution for evil in this magnitude. When the news gets out and the townspeople come to see for themselves, what they find is that their, their nemesis, their longtime enemy here, is clothed. And he's in his right mind. And he's talking. He's having a conversation, a civil conversation with Jesus and his disciples. And they are blown away by this. Their response to this is the same as the disciples' response was to Jesus' actions on the sea. They're terrified. They would rather have the evil they know than this power that before whom that evil is no match. And they beg Jesus to leave. Mark doesn't get into to, 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 to any more than that on, in terms of why. He doesn't explain to us some things we'd like to know, like why does Jesus send these spirits into some pigs? Or he doesn't explain to us how the farmer made ends meet after he lost his whole herd. All of those, those are the questions we'd like to know, and, and we don't get them there. The point for Mark is pretty simple. The point is that Jesus has a power that is unmatched and that is only explainable if Jesus is himself God made flesh. I think that's the point Mark makes when he records Jesus' words to the man who's been delivered. And he, when he says in, uh, let's see, in verse 19, he tells the man to go home and tell his friends how much the Lord has done for you. The next verse, Mark reports, the man did exactly that. He went home and he told what Jesus had done for you. Mark, that's, that's, not, that's not an accident. 
Mark's portrait, if you didn't get it from the story, you'll get it maybe from the words that are used. The Lord and Jesus are one and the same. And this story proves it for Mark. Next story. Jesus is more powerful than the powers of nature. He's more powerful than the forces of evil. Jesus is also more powerful than incurable disease. We get to this next story. Jesus has been banished, essentially, from the other side of the sea. So he, he gets in his boat. He goes back across to where he started out, and, and he shows up there. And remember, he's famous. He left there in part because the crowds were, mo- were, were just mobbing him there, and he couldn't get what he needed to done. And so when he gets back, they're, they're all still there. They've been waiting for him. So he's, a throng comes around him. And what we get when Jesus returns to the other side of the sea is another example of what we've talked about before as a Markin sandwich. One of those stories, groups of stories, really, that Mark gives us where, where he starts one of them, then he inserts another story in the middle, and then he comes back and finishes the story that he started. It's a, it's a pretty good storytelling technique that helps to establish tension, build the drama of it, but it's also making a point that these two things are very closely connected, that to understand one is to understand the meaning of the other. And in this case, the tie that binds them together is the fact that, that, that something is afflicting a human body, illness or sickness, and, and even to the point of death, that has, that has left all human remedies completely futile. With the woman and uh, the, the, the woman that we're about to meet, who has come to him with a problem she's had for twelve years, the point was that doctors couldn't do it. They tried for twelve years. Doctors had tried. For the the, the father that we meet, whose whose daughter is on the brink of death, it's that he had tried all that he could. Probably a man of of means, he probably spent all the money that he could to try to get her healed. Nothing could be done, and Jesus speaks into both situations. So the story begins with Jairus, local leader of the synagogue somehow fights his way through the crowd and reaches Jesus. And he begs him. You can hear the despair in his voice. He begs him to come. And Mark says, in our translation, the ESV says that he implored him earnestly. My little daughter is at the point of death, he says. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. It's verse 23. Any of you have who have children or have had anyone who has been a dependent in this way can appreciate the man's despair. You know that it's your responsibility to care for this one that's placed under, your, uh, under you. And, and that's what this man felt. His daughter depends on him, relies on him for health and for survival, and, and he's helpless. He's done everything he can, and, and nothing has worked. As soon, no sooner has Jesus taken up this man's request and and, and left with him to go to his home, though, that we meet another figure who is no less helpless, no less desperate. We meet a woman who somehow fights her way through the throngs that are around Jesus, and, and she's looking for healing. If the father experiences a certain despair that comes from not being able to protect one placed under your care, this woman's despair comes from not being able to find anyone from whom care could be given. She's been looking for a solution. She's looking for a provider and a protector, and she hasn't found one. We're told that this woman, Mark's details are always where the action is. In his details, we're told that she, for 12 years, she's been looking for some sort of solution to this flow of blood, probably some sort of gynecological problem that that no one has been able to, to fix. And it's a problem that would have not just left her suffering physically, but left her suffering socially. 
Because this kind of flow of blood rendered her in a Jewish society unclean. And anyone she touched would be made unclean. So she's, she's isolated from the only society she knew to turn to for help. And the doctors that, on whom Mark says she spent all that she had, they've given her nothing. Again, just like with the, the, with, with, with the details that show us how futile the attempts to control the demon-possessed man were, Mark's details here show us how bleak this woman's situation was. Verse 26 says she suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had. And she was no better, but actually she grew worse. That's the kind of detail that an eyewitness can give you. She spent everything she had, went to every doctor she knew, and she got worse. And then she heard about Jesus. You can imagine her hearing reports of the amazing things this man had done. Maybe she heard the report about the leper who was healed with the simple touch. Maybe she was one of the ones trying to get to Jesus at those times that we're told he was, he was covered up with people. And, and, and there were so many that, that even some friends had to cut through a roof to get, their, to get their friend to Jesus to be healed. Maybe she had been hearing reports about what this man could do, but not able to actually make good on them herself for whatever reason. And now she's afraid to get her hopes up. She's been failed by so many other people before, and, and yet she's going to try it. She figures if at least I can just touch him, maybe if I could just touch his garment, that, that would be all that's necessary. She fights her way through the crowd, and she does just that, and as soon as she touches him, she's, she's healed. She can feel it, Mark says. She can feel that she's healed. Jesus' response to her is beautiful. She initially is afraid. Not because she sees his power, she's happy about that, but because she took that power without asking. And Jesus is wondering, who is it that touched me? He's looking. So she comes up and she falls before him. She's trembling, we're told, with fear. And Jesus' response to her is, once again, an example of the fact that this man combines unmatched power with deep and sincere compassion. He turns to her and he says, Daughter, he addresses her as his daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. The final story is the crescendo of all the stories. Jesus has done some things we had not seen him do before. Power over nature. Power over a whole legion of demons inhabiting one man. Power over a disease that was incurable by all the methods in use at the time. And now we see he's powerful even over death. Mark, the master storyteller, brings us new data. He's on his way, remember, to, to try to heal this little girl. Gets held up because of this interaction with this woman. And that's just long enough for the drama to get heightened a little bit. Because in the meantime, while he was taking care of this woman, we're told that the daughter has died. Mark tells us, that some from the ruler's house came and said to him, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus' simple response may as well stand as Mark's point in all these stories combined. And he now brings them to a crescendo with this girl who has already died. All Jesus says is, Do not fear, only believe. 
With Mark's vivid detail he gives us here, you can almost see Jesus walk calmly to the house of the ruler. He, he walks up to him like, like a, with the confidence of a man who knows he is in control. He walks up to the house, and as he's drawing closer to it, he can begin to hear the wailing of those who, who had been hired to mourn for the loss of this child. And you can only imagine that the wailing, that the loss of the, that, 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 that the, the mourning was even, even more intense, given that this was a little girl who had died. Death was familiar and always sorrowful, but here is one who is taken at only 12 years of age. Jesus draws nearer, and he can hear them crying. He approaches the house, and he, his response, his words to them are nothing short of comical. He says, she's not dead, but sleeping, and they laugh at him. They don't know who he is. They laugh at him. Even as they laugh, Jesus dismisses everybody except the child's parents and his disciples, and he approaches this little broken body of the helpless girl, by now we know Jesus isn't concerned about the uncleanness that this would transfer to him, just like the woman that he has just healed. A, a, a contact with a corpse transmits this uncleanness according to Jewish law. Jesus isn't worried about that. He approaches this little body, he takes her hand, and he says simply, Little girl, arise. You get no magic incantation, no spell that comes from conjuring up the powers of the universe. You get no gyrations or sweaty showboating of would-be TV healers. You get just a simple word of compassion that accomplishes exactly what he wants it to accomplish. He wields his power not as a club, but with the tenderness of one who speaks to a little girl, arise. Even death shows itself to be no match for this man. So we've seen some amazing things. Jesus has power that no one else has ever had. He has power over nature. He has power over the forces of evil. He's got power over incurable disease. And now we've seen he's even got power over death as a token of what's coming when he himself rises from the grave and promises the same to all of us. So the question is, how do we respond? That's always been Mark's question. He doesn't tell us these stories to entertain us. How do we respond to a Jesus who's got this kind of power? when we know that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and isn't still walking around healing people or calming storms. And I think the first thing we have to admit is that we don't have a promise from him that he is always going to, to, to calm the storms, literal and figurative, that, that, are all, that rage in our, in our lives. And we are, we are promised nothing that, about sickness and death. We do get sick. We do still die. And he's not here to stop it. But Mark's readers, the ones who would have been reading this when it was first written, they lived after Jesus was gone too. The purpose of these stories was not to promise that Jesus would ever heal, uh, heal you or raise your loved ones from the dead on the spot. The purpose of these stories when they were written was to convince those who were reading them that Jesus did these things. Then and, and, and it, that it proves that he's worth trusting now. The stories are written to show that his power is uniquely divine and that your faith won't be in vain because his power is uniquely divine. There's encouragement, I think, in these stories from the fact that Jesus lives now, that his power, this same power, is still active in the world, if not in the personal and visible way that it was active when he walked the earth. It, it's still just as active in our 
hearts and lives today. And I want, I want to say three things in particular that I think we can, we can find encouragement in in seeing this portrait of Jesus' power. Jesus' power, first of all, is, is an antidote to fear. Jesus' power is an antidote to fear. That, that theme, the theme of fear, runs through all the stories we've just seen. Mark, is, Mark always tells us the disciples were afraid. Those who saw the, the demon-possessed man were afraid. This, this, this father who thought he was losing his daughter was, was terrified beyond words. There, there's fear in place, and Jesus' power speaks into that fear and calls people out of that fear. That's the intention of the stories. And, and I think that that can still happen for us today. That the fact that he has his power is an antidote to our fear. If we're honest with ourselves... In one way or another, fear and anxiety are always going to be regular features of our lives. We don't find ourselves lost at sea. That's true enough. But our fears are more often rooted in our identity and who we are, whether or not we have value, where we might be able to find value that's worth staking our lives on. We fear failure and what it says about us, failure at work, Failure as parents or spouses or friends. Failure at school or failure to meet the standards of those whose opinion matters to us. That's what we fear. What does failure mean about us? You ever feel like you're scrambling around trying to make your life work, but your efforts seem about as futile as the disciples' attempts to keep their boat afloat or the doctor's attempts to heal this woman over 12 years? That you feel like you're just helpless in the same way that they were. Maybe your fears are more concrete and external. Maybe not an actual storm, but it could be illness. It could be that you or someone that you love dearly is sick and you don't know how that they will, they will be healed. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's a fear about whether or not you, you'll be able to provide for yourself or your family because of job loss. You feel helpless. All of us do at certain times and powerless over our circumstances. When we struggle, though, with fear and anxiety, it only shows one of two things. It always shows that either our trust is misplaced, our trust is not rooted ultimately in Jesus, but it shows that we're relying on ourselves or relying on someone who may not be trustworthy. It might show that, a misplaced trust in self or in some other insecure source of security. Or it shows that we're trusting in Jesus but without a clear understanding of his nature without the clear sense that there's nothing that can overpower him or separate us from his love. Anytime we experience fear, fundamental to that experience is a misplaced trust or a trust in a Jesus that isn't as powerful in our minds as he is in reality and as he is in the stories Mark has told. The disciples, they had seen so much by the time they ended up on this boat. They had seen Jesus do incredible things that we would give anything to see Jesus do, and they still were afraid in the moment. And the reason they were afraid is that the, the concern for their lives and for the storm that they found themselves in was more vivid to them than the Jesus and the things that they had seen him do, the Jesus who had presented themselves to him and called them to follow him. These concerns in their life, that particularly the storm, was stronger, more vivid than the confidence they had in Jesus. And that is fundamental to every experience of fear we will ever have. Fear Worry and anxiety always show in us a stronger appreciation of things other than Jesus' power and love. In the stories Mark's told us, we, we don't get a promise that nothing unpleasant is ever going to happen to us. But 
we have a promise that Jesus is powerful enough to do what's best for us and that he is loving and compassionate enough to do the thing that his love requires. We have a promise that Jesus is powerful enough to do what we need most, what's best for us, and that he is loving enough to want to accomplish that. What we have here is a call to embrace our helplessness and to rest on Jesus' power and to heed Jesus' words. Do not fear, only believe. So, Jesus' power is an antidote to fear. His power is also a promise of victory over our sin. So, surely I'm not the only one who feels beat down regularly by sin, by sin that you think that you've got licked just when it raises its head again and and, and pulls you back down into the mire. Maybe you hate it, but you seem powerless against it. It's not that you're possessed necessarily by a legion of demons, but as far as you're concerned, your, your sin is just as resilient. It's just as overpowering. You try to hunker down and control it. You try, you try to do what the townspeople did to the man possessed by the demons. You put chains on it, right? That's what so many of our moralistic attempts to draw boundaries that separate us from unholiness and make us holy, things that we can't accomplish. We, we, we put these layers on top of the sin that's deep inside us as an attempt to control it, but they're as useless as the chains that hung on the wrists of this demoniac. Our sin will overpower those weak chains every single time. What we need is the same thing that the demoniac needed. We need some expulsive power to remove the sin from us, not to control the power, not to control the power of sin, not to to try to put it into change, but to to erase it, to transform us in the way that Jesus transformed this man. That's what we need. And in Jesus' power, we have a pledge of a power that can accomplish that. We have promises all through the New Testament, that we are even now being conformed into the image of God's Son. That even the same power, Paul tells us, that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in us. It's available to us. The same power that triumphed over the, over the grave is in our lives and conforming us inevitably into the image of Jesus. So what we do is we run to it in our prayers In in casting ourselves on Jesus, we embrace the fact that we're helpless and that sin is too big for us, and we throw ourselves on a power that can remove it. And we pray for the what what Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection for Christ that transforms uh, our lives and hearts and removes from us the affection for sin that's ultimately what keeps us down. In Jesus' power, we have promise of victory over sin that isn't just papering over it, isn't just binding it through chains, but it it actually removes it. And finally, in this portrait of Jesus' power, we get a call for submission to Jesus' loving authority. Everything Mark tells us from chapter 1 through the end of the book is meant to support Jesus' call to us to repent and believe in the gospel. Remember that summary from chapter 1? Where, where, where Mark introduces us to Jesus and his, and his ministry and, and the message that he was preaching, he said the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is here now. I've brought it in, essentially. So repent. Turn from your allegiance to all other kingdoms and believe the gospel. In other words, rest on me and what I am offering you. 
not in the things promised to you by the world. In Jesus' power, we have a pledge that Jesus can bear the weight that we put on him if we choose to repent and to believe. He will not be overtaken by the powers that so easily overtake us. If we turn from trusting in ourselves, in our own ability, in in the promises of, of someone else, any other source of security, if we repent from that and rest on Jesus, these stories are given to us to promise that he won't fail us. That if we do that, he can bear the weight. His call is all-encompassing. We've seen that enough times already. It's a call to yield our autonomy, a call to root our identity as people in our identification with Jesus and to rest on him and to serve him above self or any other master. But in his authority, we find not a self-serving dictatorship, but the gentleness of one who spoke, little girl, arise. We find the grace of one who came to die, Mark will tell us later, for those who disobeyed his commands. Much of what drives the Bible's story from beginning to end is is idolatry. Is God's relationship with the people who again and again choose to rest on other things rather than wait for his provision. When Moses went up to the mountain to receive the law and they turned to the golden calf, the way that the the author there describes it is that they, they couldn't wait anymore beginning of that chapter, they couldn't wait for God anymore, so they decided to build a representation of God, an image that they thought could provide them what they needed. And that is essentially what we're doing when we replace waiting for Jesus and his timing and his provision that's rooted in a trust that he can and will provide what's best for us for things that we might be able to build in his place. The call of Jesus to repentance and faith is a call to wait on him and a call to trust that he can bear the weight we put on him. It's a call to submit to his yoke that he's going to bear for us that's easy and light because it rests on his shoulders. So the, way, the wind and the waves heard his voice, and so did the evil spirits, and so did the woman's rebellious body, and so even did death. So the only question left is when we hear Jesus call to us to repent and believe, will we, will we hear his voice? Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for the power that you have exercised in creation and making everything that is, the power that you have exercised in holding that creation together, and the power that we see you exercise in our lives each day. We thank you for revealing these stories to us as a way of encouraging us to rest in your power, and we pray that we would do that. We know it's supernatural. We know that in our sin we are always more willing to see the vividness of of, uh, of the cares of this world, of the things that we don't have but think we need, of the, the, the weight that we, that we feel from, from illness, from death, from brokenness. We find it so hard to wait for you and to trust that you will provide. And so we ask for a miracle in each of our hearts. We ask that the same power exercised in each of these stories would would overwhelm the sinful tendency to trust in ourselves and, to, and, and make us to rely on Jesus. We pray that prayer with confidence because we know that you have come here for us, that your promises are all yes and amen in Jesus. 
and we claim them this morning, and we ask that you would help us to do that with joy and security. And we pray this in his name. Amen.